All right, so the uh, recorder is on. Mm -hmm. Here we are. I'm with Jude Curavin, everyone, here at the Science and Non-Duality Conference in San Jose, California. And uh, I had the opportunity this morning to listen and watch her fascinating talk. And so I'm looking forward to talking to her a little bit more today and expounding upon some of the fascinating work that she's doing in really um, discussing and exploring the science of non-duality. But before we get into that, Jude, you know, you're a scientist, but also your, your personal background and like, you know, when you were talking about four years old is fascinating. So I would love for you just to kind of unpack a little bit your own personal story and what led you to this work that you do. I suppose in a way, you know, to describe it as work, you know, you can't have this much fun with your clothes on and call it work, really. So <laughs> it's it's whatever it is, but it, it's really been a lifelong quest yeah. of curiosity mm. for me to, to understand the nature of reality at the deepest level that I can perceive that. And that means not just understanding, but experiencing what reality is. So, yeah, you're right. I started really at four years old, as I'm aware of, when a discarnate light came into my bedroom and started. A discarnate light. A discarnate light, unembodied. Mm. So not embodied, but just a light, rather like a sphere of light. And slightly diffuse, Mm -hmm. um, came into my bedroom and I started to hear a voice that seemed to be coming from it. And you know, four years old. What's not to think? Oh, okay. Yeah. And totally uh, normal. Totally normal. <laughs> and even though, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, I grew up in the north of England, yeah. um, the daughter of a coal miner. Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless, it, it was at that age. It was it was normal. So I started to hear that voice. That voice started to offer information. I was fascinated right from the get go. Um, in in terms of a whole raft of things. One was, you know, the cosmos at its highest, biggest, greatest level. The other was ancient wisdom. Mm -hmm. And um, the other was then walking between worlds and having these experiences, whether it was precognitive dreams or telepathy or or seeing auras or, you know, whatever it was. And it's it's been progressive, you know. It's been step by step and some of those steps have been huge steps there's yeah, yeah. been tiny little steps but it's all added to that lifelong journey so to add to those experiences and to the you know the studies I was doing of ancient wisdom I also studied leading edge science as it was back in the 60s 50s 60s 70s which of course was very dualistic yeah I'm very materialistic reductionist so it's like taking apart something as much as we could to try and understand you know it's it's basic parts but of course as I always remember a quote by Deepak saying you know when you take apart a wireless where does the music go yeah and I was finding that although the science was was really helpful it was very limiting as well mm-hmm. but it offered a language that was far more acceptable yeah. as I went forward mm. than the, 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 the experiential understanding yeah. that I was having and the ancient wisdom that of course in those days was really dishonoured it was really oh well what do they know you know we're far more sophisticated we know far much and of course now we understand that they had profound insights that we're really not just discovering I think we have moved forward yeah but it, we've not moved as forward or as far away from those ancient intuitive perceptions of the nature of reality. So now it seems to be all coming together and after yeah. a lifelong journey for me of 60 years, I'm 
excited that it is all coming together because it needs to mm -hmm. because our, our materialistic the appearance of separation that goes along with duality based perception has really brought us to the edge of catastrophe in my view Absolutely. and it's only by remembering and you know bringing together this mm -hmm. this all of this mm -hmm. understanding and seeing the deeper nature reality and realizing that it is unified yeah. and yet wonderfully diverse. Yeah. And I think that offers us the inspiration and empowerment mm -hmm. to, to, to transform a potential breakdown into a possible breakthrough. Mm -hmm. I love the way that you use the word remembering because you're implying that there was a dismembering mm -hmm. almost that's taken place. And you mentioned that a little bit in your talk this morning about mm -hmm. um, the physics, the, mm -hmm. the, the modern physics before it sort of moved into this more contemporary physics mm -hmm. um, uh, of really offering a kind of dismembered mm -hmm. view of reality. Can you explore that a little bit more of what that, what that means? Yeah, well, it really goes back to to, to the time of, of Copernicus, Galileo Copernicus, and you know the the, the, the almost stranglehold mm. the religious authorities had, the church authorities had on any exploration of reality, and some very very brave people, you know, started to sort of try and move forward in terms of understanding um, what what our universe is about and of course our universe then was was much much smaller yeah. um, in, in in that perception yeah. but I think what happened then is is there was a, a probably an implicit and an explicit agreement that the church authorities would deal with anything that wasn't physical and that you know the early scientists mm. and and people like Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler and Unto Newton and beyond, were okay as long as they limited what they were looking at to the physical yeah. world. And, and you know, so for good or for ill, a schism happened, you know, between spirituality. But of course, then it was primarily very, you know, dogmatic, um, authorized religious beliefs, yeah. and this this nascent scientific exploration of the nature of reality. But by limiting it to the physical realm, you know, the Newtonian worldview, and, and to be fair to Newton, he was probably the last alchemist. Yeah. So, you know, he was, he was writing and not telling anybody about all the other stuff he was doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in terms of the physical realm, it was very much that mechanistic and yet beautifully ordered, you know, great, beautiful clockwork yeah. universe. Yeah. And that elegant, went on. Yeah, yeah elegant. And that went on really until the end of the 19th century where the realization came that that was itself too limiting. Mm -hmm. And then the quantum uh, theory and relativity theory came along and instead of sort of absolutes, yeah. space and time and separate objects, a whole bigger sense of, of what might be the nature of reality began to emerge of relativities and relationships and dynamic interrelationships and processes rather than separate things and absolutes. The problem is though that that was still very much even though, even though those theories required a non-physicalized substrate as it were to how the universe arose, that part of it was very much literally kept under the surface. Um, and also the implications of what quantum theory and relativity theory were showing us that, you know, the observer and the observed are not separate, 
and that our universe is non-locally interconnected at the most basic level for quantum mechanics to work at all, those were sort of pushed to one side. And, And it was almost like the Newtonian mindset had been carried into regardless of what we were being shown by the discoveries of 20th century science. So after a while it seemed that instead of really delving into the philosophical implications of what was being discovered, that was pushed to the side and almost it became technological Mm -hmm. because those discoveries were were offering amazing new insights into technological possibilities Mm. and that really has has been the, the direction of travel until now. So the 20th century scientific revolution is and was incomplete and it wasn't just incomplete because quantum theory and relativity theory seemed, seemed to be incompatible because quantum theory has no notion of time mm-hmm. and relativity theory, space-time is not quantized. It's not just that, it's not even when dark matter and dark energy came to an understanding, partial. It's because the whole of that edifice of 20th century science still didn't understand the significance of information mm. and ignored consciousness mm-hmm. and the nature of consciousness. So those are the, were the elephants in the room that are only now. Yeah. You know, and again, it's like the end of the 19th century where the, the radiation from a hot oven could not be understood unless you understood that energy matter is quantized. Mm. Otherwise, you get an infinite answer to energy mm. instead of a finite answer. Well, now the evidence has piled up to such an extent that the understanding and the inclusion of information as being foundational and therefore consciousness is now coming into into view and not just into view but at the very heart and soul yeah. of the, the, our understanding. So, I, I, yeah, I want to ask you a little more. I'm just going to move this because I'm just worried that our, that our touching the table will sort of offer a disruption, so I'll just put that there. Um, so. Yeah, so I thought it was so interesting, the concept of information as you brought it up, but it sort of, um, it provoked a lot of questions for me because I, it, when, I, when I hear information, it makes me think a little bit of kind of the computational models of reality that we're seeing by a lot of scientists. But I feel like that's not what you mean. You know, yeah. the idea that like consciousness can be reduced to a kind of like a computer algorithm, you know, doesn't, that seems like that's not what you're saying. So can you yeah. kind of distinguish what you mean by that, like fundamental information from maybe, you know, something like that, that is the more computational view of reality? Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, really going back to what Einstein said, that the universe is as simple as it can be, but no simpler. What we know pretty much now, all the cosmological evidence is showing that our universe is finite Mm. in space and time. It had a finite beginning 13.8 billion years ago at its smallest scale, not infinitely small, but Planck scale, really tiny, but still finite, Mm -hmm. with the, 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 the minimum information it needed to basically enable it to exist and evolve. So those laws of physics are, in fact, if you like, instructional algorithms enabling our universe to exist and evolve. But they're so beautiful and they're so fine-tuned and our universe began in such a a minimum level of, of informational entropy, and I can come back to that, that it was the perfect start to a perfect universe that justice has been evolving ever since. But because of that, we are able to understand that quantization of energy matter 
is the simplest way in which finite energy and matter can interrelate, okay? But we also know that actually the size of, of that quantization, you know, the amount of information, that the, 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 the quarks and the electrons of those subatomic entities themselves embody a, a lot of information of how they exist, how they interrelate. Mm. So now what we understand, both from the study of black holes, the study of the informational content of a star that forms a black hole, that it really is digitized information, the same information that you know we can describe any object in terms of. The same information that when we bathe an object in light and then recreate that light and on a two-dimensional film and then put another beam of light through that forms a hologram. Mm -hmm. The information that we can create virtual realities from is exactly the same mm -hmm. as the digitized information that's held at the most tiny pixelated scale of our universe which is the Planck scale. So from black holes to the whole universe, what cosmologists are coming to the view of is that all that we call 3D-ness is actually a holographic projection from the boundary of our universe. Consciousness projecting itself into an exploration of itself yeah. as our universe exists and evolves. It so happens that digitized information is the simplest and yet the most universally useful way of expressing the thought form and the myriad of thought forms that make up our universe, mm. our universal, as a finite thought form in the infinite mind of the cosmos. So it's not that our universe is a simulation. It's not that what we're calling the information, which is more fundamental than energy and matter and space and time, it's just that that is the simplest way of expressing that diversity of expression. It's the simplest, most effective, most versatile way of doing it. Yeah. Now, one thing that, uh, that I noted that was really interesting and beautiful was your way of describing uh, not the Big Bang, but the Big Breath. <laughs> now, what's at stake in that difference for you? Um, and uh, and can you you know unpack a little bit more of what you mean by uh, the beginning of the cosmos as the, the an exhalation? I well, how does it feel to you? If you Beautiful. say big, if you say Big Bang, and then you say Big Breath, how does the Bang feels violent and like warlike? Yeah, it's like explosion, like an explosion. Yeah, chaos, yeah. very patriarchal, like a very, yeah, like a bomb went off. Exactly. Yeah. And what does a big breath feel like? It feels like the exhale of creation. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Expansiveness mm -hmm. and, and that beautiful, exquisite feeling of just... Yeah. It's exactly that. And also, it honors the ancient perspective of the breath of Brahma as yeah. being the expression of, of our universe. Yeah. So in all those ways, it, it, and, and also continuation, because when we talk of Big Bang, it's like that initiating chaos. But when we talk about, when I talk about the Big Breath, that's a continuing out-breath mm -hmm. of creation. Yeah. And so that, yeah. So when you 
when you think about um, the the beginning in that way, or the the, the the first exhalation, if we can call it that, you know, obviously when we try to get under that or before that, we we resort to metaphor and mythology. So, what to you is um, what do you appeal to when you explain that first emergence of of the cosmic exhale? Well. It's very interesting because obviously, in a, if you like, a scientific sense, this yeah. is very, very speculative. Yeah. But again, you know, going back to ancient perspectives, this is more like finite, you know, universes or universe souls mm -hmm. as finite thought forms in the infinite and eternal mind of the cosmos. I mean, so many philosophers, including Max Planck, mm -hmm. after whom we named the Planck scale, this basic pixelation, this informational pixelation of reality, talks of consciousness being primary. So it, it ties very much back to this concept, and, and Einstein, of course, called uh, referred to cosmic mind. Mm -hmm. So it's this sense of an infinite and eternal cosmos which differentiates itself it can explore itself through finite universe souls mm -hmm. of, of thought forms that have a beginning, exhale in a big breath through a life cycle, and then come to perhaps a completion where the understanding and the wisdom and the self-awareness that they have embodied and embraced and evolved dissipates back into the cosmic plenum mm. at the end. And we have a very early perspective as to how that might be and one of the things that I've written about in my book The Cosmic Hologram is that when you go back to the first moment 13.8 billion years ago of the Big Breath the actual temperature of our universe was massive it was something like 10 to the 32 degrees Kelvin yeah. so what we have in our universe as space expands the temperature reduces so we have both a thermodynamic process, which at the end of our universe, space is probably at or very close to absolute zero in temperature terms. But the, the, the correlate of that is our universe began at its simplest level in terms of its informational content, its entropy. And that has moved from its simplest to its most complex mm. through that process. So it's, it's a beautiful, expansion and restatement of the two laws of thermodynamics as two laws of infodynamics but what it shows is that as the temperature space expands and the temperature reduces from 10 to the 32 K we're now at a point where space is 2.7 or thereabouts K so we've got a measure that says how long it may well be really? before we get to that end how long do we have, Jude? Well, the latest, <laughs> the latest perspectives, which is a cosmological perspective, because the other thing that was realised a year or so ago by a group of folks led by David Sobral is what they did is they looked back in time and they realised that the level of star formation has reduced dramatically over the last nine billion years. So they looked at a couple of billion, four billion, nine billion, and what they realised is that more than 90% of all stars that could have formed have already been formed. Mm. Our universe is middle-aged. Mm. 
our universe is going through this cycle where there's no more hydrogen to create stars. So we're going down that route, the temperature's dropping to absolute zero, the complexity is increasing, and there's some calculations on, on suggesting just how many bits of information our universe can hold at its completion. Mm. And they all come together to suggest a time frame of something close to tens of billions of years. Certainly not infinite, and certainly not trillions of years. So there's a convergence of, of evidence, discoveries, suggesting that it may be tens of billions of years. So our universe has a life cycle that is probably something like 25, 30 billion years as a finite thought form. And then at the end of that time, the possibility of rather like a bubble, you know, a soap bubble in, the, in that infinity of, my, of cosmic mind, just coming to a point of going, just di dissipating. Mm. Have you ever seen a bubble burst? Yeah. And you see this beautiful, almost rainbow, little droplets just going into the air. Just that sense of, of that. The other thing is there are a number of um, cosmological theories suggesting how new universes might bud off from the insides of black holes. So just as in a human being, when we're born, we grow as a woman and as a man coming together to have children. We don't do it at the end of our lives, we do it in our fertility. Mm -hmm. So black holes are still within that process of fertility. So if new universes bud off as white holes, mm. tiny Planck-scale white holes, and then the, the continuing universe cycle ends with this, you know, almost absolute zero, beautiful thermodynamic informational endpoint process. It's like the end of a life. Mm. All the universe souls learned, all of its microcosmic co-creators as part of it, its intelligence, non-locally connected, so it exists and evolves as a coherent entity, it comes to the end of its life just dissipates back into the infinity mm. of cosmic mind. And then is the theory that these are all, that there are many of these, these breath exhalations of a, of a finite thought form, as you express it, happening concurrently and infinitely? Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I tend to, to see it as an analogy of, of, of a pan of boiling water. You know, mm. a pan of boiling water is not infinite, <laughs> but if a pan of boiling water was infinite, and you see the bubbles just arise and, and, and then dissipate. Yeah. It, it's it's that and like and, waves. If, and yeah. if the consciousness, which is the heat of the hob, yeah. if the consciousness continues to, to sort of mm. play itself out, then the bubbles continue to. Mm. I actually really like that that using the metaphor of heat because you know in the Indian tradition tapas is one of those first words that the generating force of the cosmos exactly. and so yeah there's some ancient wisdom that that uh, resonates with that so I wanted to ask you a little bit because you've mentioned this word cosmology cosmologist a lot and you're a cosmologist you know I, I feel like relatively recently we've started to see this word emerge again um, but generally it's not used a lot not many people identify as cosmologists at least you know from what I've seen so what is cosmology and how is that different from something like I don't know astronomy or, or some other you know field of scientific study that takes as its object the universe well for me it's more than our universe so mm. for me it's the whole of the nature of reality so when I describe myself as a cosmologist, I'm really describing my curiosity yeah. to try and understand as best I can the entirety of the nature of reality. And having had those experiences four years old, 
are multidimensional realms and you know communicating and learning from many intelligences in many levels of, of existence um, just understanding our universe our physical universe for me that's what physicists do yeah but that isn't enough I'm, I'm curious beyond that yeah. and I'm curious because also physics has been very much this materialistic reductionist process in many ways although some of the greatest physicists of course were some of the deepest thinkers and greatest philosophers uh, through the ages so I, I differentiate myself because I, I, I want to help folks understand this this bigger picture of, of unified reality mm -hmm. diversely expressed rather than the appearance of separation and duality based yeah. physical reality. Yeah. So it seems like there's just a, a kind of radical open mindedness in, embedded in the idea of cosmology in general compared yeah. to something else. Yeah. Yeah, wow. It's the whole enchilada. The whole enchilada. <laughs> with, with salsa and a bit of guacamole on the side. Yes, the I love thing. guacamole. Do you have much guacamole in the UK? I met, we make it because it, it's always too smooth and I like chunky guacamole. Oh, yes, absolutely. I know, and you, you can't make it with the other no. avocado, which no. I accidentally did one time. Oh, not good. Big mistake, big mistake. What do you learn? You live, you learn. You do, Jude. Uh, so, so I have a question. Um, now I, I kind of want to go back because, you know, you're so grounded as a scientist, and I feel like if you were just um, Jude Curavin, four-year-old mystic, you know, talking about all these you know, daemons and, and beings visiting her, you would maybe be, you know, some people would think you're a little bit of a quack, but because you have this, this like, incredible knowledge and, and sophisticated understanding of the science, and I would love to just talk about, you know, because I feel like we haven't explored that intersection quite yet, what is the relationship between all of this that we're talking about and the beings that you've been visited by or the intelligences that you've been that you've received information from so i'd like to talk about that and then i'd love to little, hear a little bit about like what information have you received oh, okay. <laughs> for me i guess it, it for me the whole journey began so early that there's never i've never seen a sort of polarity or, or you know difference yeah. to it and so it's been a, it's been a it's almost been, I suppose, one way of thinking about it is, is, is envisaging, you know, we start as a spring high up a mountain, a sort of little mountain spring, and we start to go down the mountain towards the sea. And as we go down the mountain and, and on, you know, different tributaries join in, and those tributaries all become part of that river. And sometimes that river runs very fast and sometimes slow and sometimes goes over a waterfall and into an eddy. So all of the journey I've been on, um, and all of the tributaries of experiences, all the understanding, where, whether I've, I've received it from my own direct experiences, whether I've had communications, whether I've read it in a book, whether I've whatever, whatever, it's such a part of a living tapestry yeah. of exploration that it's like trying to bring one thread out of a tapestry or one sure. tributary out of the river. It doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. and. So over those years, there's been so much exploration in so many ways and direct experiences and aha moments and, you know, joining the dots of, of, of this understanding and then just stepping back and going, wow, and still stepping back and going, wow. Um, that it, it, it's, it's all part of it, you know, and, and I was international business for many years. 
So you must have been a very good businesswoman. I was ace. <laughs> Got all the intelligence <laughs> on how to make the money. <laughs> and it was wonderful. And it, again, that taught me. It's been such a, and I think this is true of all of us. If we're open to it, life is learning. Life is experiencing and learning. And it's when we take that on board. And I always remember this, there was a Danish philosopher called um, Soren Kierkegaard, and I was yeah, very fortunate to be to, to be at a conference where he lived, Pesco Gilele, mm. in northern Denmark. And he used to walk up and down the the, 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 the coastal cliffs, and he was very de- very depressed yeah. at that point. And one day he had this epiphany. He just looked out to the horizon, and. You know, you can't see Sweden or Norway, you just go out to the horizon. And the light there is extraordinary. And he just saw the light of the sky and the light shining off the sea, and it just became unity. Mm. And he suddenly had this incredible insight. So everything after that was informed by that. It was buoyed by that. It was nurtured by that. So that's my journey in a way. Yeah. ever so human <laughs> with all of it yeah you know yeah I mean there it seems that it's rather than this idea that I could be standing at the at the at the cliffs and looking out and something came to me from within my own being it's like something has been offered like gifted in a way mm. yeah and you know, he also said we live life forward and understand it backwards. And you know, when I was going through all the various scenic route variations, you know, it, it's looking back and realizing how nothing's wasted, you know, and 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 just keep showing up and getting out of the way and allowing that immense intelligence that you know we're just we're we're like you know we're we're like we're floating down the stream. And this great river is just carrying us forward yeah. and to just keep enabling and allowing ourselves to, to be carried. Yeah. So in terms of the science, and we've, I know we've been talking, you know, you've been talking about it the whole interview so far, but um, I'd like to hear a little bit about some any, what your reflections are on like the state of the scientific paradigm and how, is it opening itself up to this? Do you still see a lot of pushback in terms of the orthodoxy? And then maybe segueing that into kind of a conversation about any of the science that you want to share that you think is super compelling around all these things we're talking about. I'll I'll be happy to. It's interesting because I've not experienced any pushback Mm. against the book. And I think the reason for that is is the evidence. Yeah. And it's not my evidence. You know, I cite something like 500 researchers across all many, many fields of research, all scales of discovery that are very much, this is the direction of travel, that the nature of our universe is that it is innately informed, holographically manifest, and exists and evolves as a unified entity. Mm -hmm. And so I've not had any pushback against that, and and leading edge science is, is, is absolutely going in that direction. I think, though, there is an existential crisis in science because science has spent the last 300 years honing the scientific method yeah. and honing it on a however you know, unreliable reality on the basis that the observer and the observed are separate. You know, the whole of that scientific, materialistic, reductionist methodology is actually based on the myth of separation. Yeah. And yeah. so there's a real, and, and also the exclusion of consciousness. 
So there's a real existential crisis within science because what, what do you do? It's almost, you know, it's almost as though the 20th century scientific revolution in that philosophical sense didn't happen because scientific method sort of tunneled through and kept on going yeah. even though the clues were there that actually you can't do it like this because separation is illusory. Yeah. Um, so I think that's where science is at. And inevitably, um, as Thomas Kuhn said in, in Paradigm Shift, this whole concept of you know science progresses and paradigms progress through funerals. Yeah. We don't have time for that. But you know, people have spent their whole life sincerely and with a lot of peer group pressure and their whole status and their whole you know understanding of their perspective informed by this. Yeah. So what tends to happen is younger folks come in who have no reputation to bother with yeah. and they just, they're excited and they just want to explore and they just want to go where the evidence is and hopefully there are enough, enough of those coming forward yeah. that aren't going to get tied in and realise for them this is the most exciting era science could ever be in. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's the, the era of conscious science. Mm, yeah. So then what is some of the um, science supporting this understanding of reality, if you want to go into the abridged and um, maybe uh, science for dummies version? <laughs> <laughs> okay, science for dummies, here we go. Well, I'm a dummy, so I need it to be a simple oh, I'm a dummy when it comes so. to science. I'm like, woo, dude. Where did that go? Where did that go? Okay, we could do this. Well, First of all, we're sitting on a table, right? At a table. And, and we look at this table and bang on this table, and this table looks pretty solid, okay? Mm -hmm. It's not, as I mentioned in the introduction. It's literally 99.129s and then a percentage, no thingness. The reason it appears solid is, is something in called the Pauli exclusion principle. And all that means is that when you get down to that very ephemeral subatomic level, yeah. There are no tiny billiard balls bouncing off each other, but what you do have are excitations in fields of force. Now those excitations, if you can think of that excitation is in that direction and that excitation is in that direction, they can't go through each other, okay? Now that's how subatomic entities work. Their spin, their so-called spin, means that they can't occupy the same space and time. Mm. So they, that's the sort of the appearance of I being see. separate. There are other types that don't have that limitation, like light. So light can occupy the same level, which is why it's so great for holograms, which is so, light is perfect for maximizing the amount of information you can hold within it. But when you're talking about subatomic entities that make up what we think of as matter and energy, the way they relate to each other means that they don't pass through each other. Mm. Yeah? yeah? And that gives the appearance of solidity and separation. But it's just that, the appearance of it. So energy matter is incredibly ephemeral. On the other hand, theorists, and then we've had some wonderful experiments, have shown that when you store one digitized bit of information, or you try and delete it, you actually have physical attributes like heat and work coming out of it, yeah? Mm -hmm. Which is showing that information is as physically real 
you know, if, 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 if you rub your hands together, heat's created, okay? Yeah? And you say, oh, that's all energy matter. Well, you know, when you rub information together, heat's created, mm -hmm. yeah? Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons why these massive servers that, you know, are part of the data processing technologies have such a huge requirement to be kept cool because so much heat yeah. is being generated. And it's not just about cables, it's about information rubbing up and connecting with each other. So what's now coming together is that information is real and reality itself is very ephemeral. Mm. So what physicists are starting to look at is restating the laws of physics in terms of instructions, just as we write instructions as an algorithm for software of a computer, telling our computer what to do, just as we can describe any object in terms of the ones and zeros of information, so the laws of physics are instructions, informational instructions, showing our universe how to exist and evolve. Mm. They're the operating instructions for our universe. Mm. And they're operating instructions that then operate on all the universal information that expresses itself in one way as energy matter, quantized, and as space-time, which isn't quantized. Mm. But when you then read, when you do that, when you restate the laws of thermodynamics as laws of infodynamics, it's rather like a Rubik's Cube when you do da, 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 and everything goes, oh, there you go. And it all fall, falls out to show that quantum theory, which describes energy and matter, and relativity theory, which describes space-time, are just complementary expressions of information. Mm. Mm. And with the first law allowing our universe to exist, because energy matter I hate to tell you this, and it will come as a shock, but you're 13.8 billion years old. <gasps> no! Yes. I'm looking great for You're looking age. fabulous. Yeah. I'm not looking great so much, but... No, you know. you're looking fabulous too. Yeah, 13.8 billion. Yeah. Wow. Because all the energy matter that is here now was there. Mm. It's just changed its form. Yeah. But it's been conserved. Okay? Mm. So all the information that was embodied within energy matter from that get-go has just changed its form and the laws of physics enable it to do that. But when something's conserved, like energy matter of our universe, it has no notion of time. It doesn't care. Mm -hmm. It doesn't care. It just does this or it does that. Yeah. Okay? So the first law of information says that information expressed as energy matter of our universe is always conserved from the beginning to the end. Okay? And that's just a restatement of the first law of thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. The second law is where it really gets interesting. The second law of thermodynamics says that the entropy, entropy, what's entropy, <laughs> of a system always increases through time. Now, what Ludwig Boltzmann, who did this work right at the beginning and came up with these two laws, described entropy as the number of micro states of a system. Yeah? So what he said was the number of microstates of a system, of a closed system, always increases through time. So, now I your card. Yes, please. Okay. That cup has a number of microstates. You know, it's coolish coffee, it's the cup itself, has a number of microstates. 
if I spill that cup, okay, the, the coffee will go everywhere, it'll interact with the carpet, that system will have more microstates. And you'll always know which direction is the flow of time, mm. because that spilled coffee will never then recreate itself as the unspilled coffee. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now, for a lot of time, the understanding of entropy has been order, cup, spilled, disorder. But that's not what Boltzmann meant. He was talking about microstates. More recently, a couple of theorists, and especially a gentleman called Claude Shannon, who was an IBM engineer, started to look at, right at the beginning of the information age, as to how much information you could squirt down a cable. And he came to an equation for that. And it was exactly the same equation of entropy as Ludwig Boltzmann had understood over 100 years earlier as the microstates of a system. More recently, a guy called Vlatko Vedral, who's a quantum informational theorist at Oxford, is realizing that we're talking about the informational content mm. of a system. So when, so that coffee cup has a certain amount of informational content. When it's spilled, if it was still a closed system, there'd be a lot more information. And there's more information in the future than there is in the present, and there's more in the present than the future, in the past. So what entropy's really about is about the informational content in a system. And if our universe, is a closed system, which cosmologically we're coming to understand. From the moment it began 13.8 billion years ago, as that first moment of the big breath, there's been ever more informational content mm. in our universe. And what that's meant as time has flowed. So what that has meant is that it's not order to disorder, it's actually simplicity to complexity. Mm. So for the whole universe, there was less informational entropy yesterday than there is today. And that progresses at that tiny Planck scale of every moment. Mm. Rather like, and it's not that the future's written, it isn't, but the past is. So our universe accumulates informational content. And because it's a hologram, space has to expand mm -hmm. and time has to flow for that whole process of evolution and impulse and simplicity to complexity to continue to emerge mm. and to evolve mm. and to experience. So that is the second law of thermodynamics is the second law of infodynamics. And given the first law is about energy matter, the second is about space and time. And given that quantum theory is all about energy matter and relativity theory is all about space and time, just doing that little track just restating thermodynamics to infodynamics gives you a way to reconcile the two pillars of 20th century science, quantum theory and relativity theory, just as complementary expressions of information. Mm. Wow. Well, I, you're very good at doing science for dummies. I understood about 75% of That's that. That's pretty Perfect. good. Well, maybe I'm exaggerating. Maybe it's more like 50%. No, but I think 75%. Okay, great, 75%. Um, and I might understand more tomorrow since I'm, it's going to complexify from what I'm understanding. So, uh, so now I would love to get into a little bit about the kind of existential implications mm. of this. Because, you know, uh, I, mean, I, I guess 
first off, I'm thinking of the observation that, you know, that separation is illusory. And, and, and so someone who is in, who's in a place, in a state of trauma in their lives and sort of feels um, uh, inclined at any given moment to kind of disavow their immediate embodied experience because it's too um, painful. painful, you know, could take this kind of understanding, oh, well, it's all just illusory anyway, and use that as a, a way to kind of like, you know, uh, tap out or to step out of their experience. So what are the implications of this science for for us? Um, absolutely. And, yeah. and for me, that's critical. That's yeah. absolutely vital. Because if there was no absolute direct relevance in our everyday lives, this would just be a scientific revolution. Oh, how lovely. <laughs> But the fact is it's far, far more than that because for a number of reasons. First of all, I never said, and I will never say, that reality is illusory. What I do say is the concept of separation is illusory. In other words, all that we call reality, all that we call our universe and us within it are diverse expressions of unity, but diverse expressions of unified reality. Mm -hmm. So it's the it's the separation, the appearance of separation that's illusory. Yeah. And you know, it's that appearance of separation that really has brought us because our beliefs drive our behaviours. So if we believe we're just separate, if we believe as you know scientific mainstream has told us that our universe is an accident, evolution is an accident, we're an accident, consciousness just somehow accidentally emerges from all of this then for me, that's, <laughs> that's the most miserable, disempowering yeah. BS, yeah. apart from anything else, because yeah. it really isn't the reality. So what we're seeing now is an understanding of, that is based absolutely fair square on, on scientific understanding and discoveries and evidence. But it's being shown not just at the very small and the very big, it's being revealed at all scales of existence, including the levels of our everyday lives. Mm. And therefore it involves us, you know, experiments are showing that the internet, for example, has exactly the same patterned relational informational um, beingness that a biological ecosystem does, yeah? The same patterns. You, you know, I don't know if, if our listeners have, have looked at some of the great visuals on the, uh, the internet, but if you were to look at a, a visual of brain neurons mm. and a visual of river systems and a, a visual of intergalactic webs of um, electromagnetics that hold galaxies together, it's called the web, yeah. you wouldn't know which was which. Mm. It's the same patterning, whether it's in someone's brain, whether it's in a river system, whether it's in galaxies far, far away and a mm. long, long time ago. All of it, and we're finding the same patternings throughout, not just natural phenomena, but all human-involved phenomena. Our collective decisions follow the same patternings. Our usage of cell phones follow the same patterning as, as natural phenomena. This applies to us all. And what it's showing is, as I say, that you know, reality is not separate, and yet it is diversified. It empowers the uniqueness of the me mm -hmm. within the diversity and the genius of the we within this oneness. And it brings, it brings meaning, it brings purpose, it brings empowerment to each of us, and it doesn't 
it doesn't get rid of the trauma that we've incurred so far. Uh -huh. It offers us a way forward, it gives us a new authentic vision of reality. But our duality-based myth of separation has incurred a lot of trauma yeah. within our collective. Yeah. And so as we wake up to this, we need to heal this. Uh -huh. Yeah, We can't, with a leap, we were free. We really have to realize that what we're seeing around the world is that residual collective trauma that, you know, compassionately and honestly and authentically really needs to be healed. But we can't resolve that from the same level of awareness that created it. And right. that's why this is important. Mm. Because as long as we play out the duality-based, limited, wrong understanding of the nature of reality, those beliefs will drive our behaviours. Mm. Mm. So that's why this is so important. And it's important not just for us, but if we don't wake up to this, if we don't come to a point, and pretty quick, where we understand and experience and embody unity awareness. And that means, you know, healing our relationship with ourselves, with each other, with our beloved Mother Earth. You know, what are we offering our kids and their kids? You know, it's, it, for me, this is the greatest gift we can offer our children. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you see, I mean, we see what the alternative would be like in the world. We're seeing it all around us every day in the media and, um, and in the political events and global events that we're experiencing. So um, one thing that I found in one of the articles that I read of yours, which was a lovely article that I, read, that I uh, understood um, a little bit of, <laughs> Um, it's beautiful. No, it's great. Uh, and I, you actually inspire me to under to want. I want to actually understand more of the science, like in a more, um, in a more rigorous way. It's it's very fascinating. I'm going to go buy your book immediately. Um, so one of the things you mentioned, and, and you know, people love numbered systems. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to bring this in, even though I think we're we're talking a little bit about all of this. Um, but the, the, you mentioned the eight codes of universal wisdom in this article. And so, and they are, you know, relativity, resolution, resonance, reflection, change, choice and consequence, conservation and concession. And, um, and so what is this, what, what inspired these eight codes for you? And can we like touch on each of them a little bit? Yeah, sure, I'll be happy to. Direct experience, actually. Okay. You know, one of the things of, of cosmology is that physics and metaphysics, you yeah. know, the, the, the physics of consciousness are the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we talk about vibration, when we talk about, you know, think, think of light, you know, think of how light interacts with itself. Think of things like musical analogies of resonance and yeah. coherence and all the rest of it. Well, that's the way consciousness plays with itself. And all of this, these eight principles of co-creation are there. They, they play through the universe. They play through our individual and, and collective consciousness. The only real difference is whether we're conscious, a conscious microcosmic co-creator or we're not conscious, but the co-creativity still happens. Yeah. You know, whether we're oblivious to it at, a, at that level or not, it, it's the way that things run. So, you know, they're very simple. But the point is, each of them, if, if someone consciously attunes to them. So, for example, the, the, the one change, yeah? Um, 
I, in part of my life, you know, I got to a point where I really loved my life. You know, I didn't want it to change. You seem to, yeah. Oh, I didn't want it to change. But change is endemic. It, we learn through change. We grow through change. So I was in a period of my life where I was trying to hold on. Mm-hmm. And, and the problem is by holding on, the pain of holding on got worse and yeah. worse and worse. And it was only when I, I let go because the pain of holding on actually got over a tipping point, so it was worse than the pain of letting go, that I went with the flow. So the principle of change is, are you going to go with the flow or are you going to hang on? And do you hang on because it looks marvellous and wonderful and you can't envisage anything that's going to be better? Or is it actually you're holding on to a, a comfort blanket of pain itself? And, you know, I used to be work as a healer with many thousands of people and it's quite extraordinary how people hold on to the pain of say a relationship mm-hmm. that really is deeply um, codependent and painful and yet they don't change because they're afraid of what that change may bring and almost inevitably when they let go that change brings incredible wonder and lovely you know happiness mm-hmm. into their lives so that's the point it's it's you know, do you go with this or do you not go with this? Are you oblivious to it or are you aware of it and prepared to go with the flow of it? Mm. Mm. And that's true of all of those, of the eight. That's the case for all of them in their own way. And of course, all of them are complementary, but they're all part of the experience of life. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation, Jude. Is there anything else that you, um, any note that you'd like to end on? Anything that maybe we didn't cover with regards to your work or with regards to um, non-duality or the science of non-duality that you want to talk a little bit about? I think very briefly a couple of things. First of all, you know, I'm I'm liking what this is all about Mm -hmm. to a car, okay? (laughs) Some people want to know how the car's built. They want to get underneath, they want to fiddle with the engine, they want to do all the rest of it. They want to know every bit about that, how that car is constructed. Other folks want to learn how to drive and perhaps become a driving instructor for others. Yeah. Other folks just want to get in the passenger seat and know the wheels aren't going to fall off, that the direction of travel's fine, and that it's going to be a great ride. Yeah. So what I'm saying about the book is the Cosmic Hologram as a book is a seed point to unity awareness. And for those folks who want to build the car, drive the car, be a driving instructor, or or want to be able to drive themselves, deepen your understanding of it. For those folks who just want to get in the car and have a great ride and know that the car's safe, the book's got you back. (laughs) The book's got you back. Excellent. ultimately what the book's about and it's the first of a trilogy is about instead of falling into fear it's time for us to come together and leap Mm. into love Mm. it's time to come home is that the overall idea of the trilogy or yes i see we're calling it the transformation trilogy but that's a working thing because the other wording we're using is whole world view and it's about head and heart and hands. Oh, wow. Yeah, mm. it's about integrating. So if you like, the cosmic hologram's the head. Yeah. The coming book is Gaia, her story, which is the heart. Mm-hmm. And the third book is Many Voices, One Heart, which is the hands. Now what do we do? Now what do we do? Now what do we do? It's like the ethical and social implications. Bigger, yeah. bigger, 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 bigger. Mm. It's, you know, when you not just understand and experience but embody unity awareness literally what now for us as as a as biocosmic co-creators you know what now for us Mm -hmm. and it's everything Mm. 
because it's like living in the dark and then suddenly turning the light on and my goodness me. And uh, to give away a little bit of a sneak peek of that, what, what is now for us according to this perspective? I feel we are on the threshold. Mm. And, you know, we look at maybe the, the mainstream media and, and, you know, it's a very old paradigm. It's very much still in this myth of separation. Yeah, yeah. We look at the political system. It is very much there. We look at a lot of corporates. But, you know, we're working with, with change makers across the world mm. who get this. Yeah. And these change makers, you know, across many, many levels of different expertise are coming together to hold hands, mm -hmm. to tell their stories, to show up, and really are the empowerers of, of others mm -hmm. to say come on guys time let's step forward together let's take this amazing leap of love into the next whole goodness knows where it's going to bring us of conscious evolution wow amazing jude i've enjoyed this conversation so much this is such an interesting topic and um and you express it so articulately and beautifully so thank you for sharing your time um where can people find out more about you in terms of website and if you are obviously we're here at the sand conference a little too late for everybody to show up and see you <laughs> but um you know where can people find you where can they um experience more of jude curvin well, um, we're, we're umbrellaing our message, and I'm not using the raw we, I have a wonderful team and a wonderful yeah. group of folks that are all coming together with this, called the Whole World View. So wholeworld-view.org is our new website, and wholeworld-view is our YouTube channel, so we're putting a lot of videos on there. Um, I've got a personal website, Jude Curvin. Com, a lot of the interviews we link into that so there's whole links and of course the books including Cosmic Hologram mm -hmm. are on Amazon and Barnes mm -hmm. and Noble and Cosmic Hologram is your most recent one it is and this is really now that the, the biggie because the other books have really been um, <laughs> the hors d'oeuvre this is the main course all right so the, the I'll jump to the main course go for I'll it. go back for the hors d'oeuvres well, later the, we've got the chunky guacamole Oh, yes. What, what's oh, not to love? <laughs> I love ending on guacamole. Thank you so much. Can't beat it. <laughs>